Welcome to the Blockchain VC, a podcast about crypto and the digital assets ecosystem. My name is Tomer Federman, and I'm the managing partner at Federman Capital. We invest in the most promising blockchain startups across the globe. I have more than 15 years of experience in tech, and before starting the fund, I was on the product side at Facebook, where I led product strategy and global growth of some of Facebook's major ad products. Previously, I also lived in Silicon Valley for a few years, where I attended Stanford Business School. You can find me on Twitter at Tomer Federman. Before we begin, please note that this podcast is for informational purposes only. And all the opinions expressed on this show, either by guests or me, do not reflect the opinions of Federman Capital. Nothing on the Blockchain VC podcast represents an investment or financial advice. Please, do your own research. Also, if you like this episode of the Blockchain VC and want to help bring more awareness to the space, I'd really appreciate it if you can rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. This only takes a few seconds and helps get the word out. Okay, let's do this. Really excited to welcome to the show today, Mike Alfred, co-founder and CEO of Digital Assets Data. Mike, welcome to the show. Thank you, Tomer, for having me. Yeah, really excited to have you on. So Mike, would love to start the discussion by talking about your background and how you got into the crypto space. Sure. Yeah. So I grew up in uh, San Diego, California, uh, went to Stanford uh, undergrad, actually studied uh, history, so nothing too technical. Um, I really just love to read books. So I would you know, read a thousand page book in an afternoon. That was kind of my hallmark as a, as a grade school and high school student. Um, so I've always been interested in, in digesting large volumes of information. Um, and I've met, you know, a lot of Stanford history majors, including some that are now running, you know, large uh, microbreweries, some that are running hedge funds and to a person, all of those folks are really good at processing, you know, information. So that's kind of a theme, been a theme of my life. Um, I've been investing since Basically, I was 17 years old. I spent the summer uh, between uh, senior year of high school and college selling Cutco knives. I happened to be pretty good at selling Cutco knives and, and made made about $14,000 as a 17-year-old. And rather than wanting to go on a spending spree, I immediately opened up an E-Trade account. Uh, initially, it was a custodial account because I wasn't 18, so my parents had to sign for it. But I put it all in there and started buying tech stocks. And you know, this was the late 90s. Everything you bought would double or triple in three months. So of course, you know, I'm sitting there as a freshman at Stanford thinking I'm a genius because I've tripled my money uh, only to run right into March of 2000 and the, and the tech crash. And so I learned a lot about, you know, what happens when markets get too hot uh, in bubbles, uh, what happens during the corrections, started to read more about index investing. So even back then, the Vanguard folks were rapidly you know, telling their story about indexing and low cost investing. I learned a lot about, you know, the classic Graham and Dodd, you know, Warren Buffett value investing strategy. And I've sort of incorporated a bunch of those uh, components into my own personal investing over two decades. So today I would describe my investing strategy as, you know, traditional value investing without being afraid of something new. So, so I like the barbell approach where you have kind of low multiple, high dividend pairs, high cash flow, uh, stock sitting right next to Bitcoin, right, or early stage biotech uh, in your portfolio. Because I think when you blend those two together, you get really interesting, you know, return and risk characteristics that you don't see in, in most traditional investor portfolios. Hmm. 
And, and are you focused on any specific vertical or like, how are you thinking about that? So I, I've gotten really familiar over the last 20 years, I would say, with, with uh, consumer products, um, focusing on things like alcohol, right? So I have five or six core kind of alcohol uh, company holdings that have done you know, really well for me, uh, retail. So like today I'm long target and Kroger and CVS stuff that nobody wanted three years ago, but you know, all of those companies have had nice recoveries. Um, I've believe it or not made a lot of money in biotech, particularly in kind of the early stage gene therapy, um, and oncology focused names. So I, I, I sent out a list. One of my investors in digital assets data was just, was just having a dinner with him in San Francisco last week. And he was on my biotech list. And he said, look, you sent out a list of 20 names three years ago. He's like, 10 of them have been acquired. I said, yeah, got a little lucky on that, but also just knowing thematically uh, what space to be in and when, you know, gene therapy is an incredible uh, way that kind of medicine's becoming more personalized. But then of course, I also love, you know, classic technology. So I'm long Alibaba and Amazon. Um, I, I am long Starbucks, right? I'm long, uh, believe it or not, a couple of energy names, but not producers, more midstream and upstream names. And then, you know, a handful of other verticals within that. Um, so I wouldn't say that I super specialized. I prefer to keep an open mind because at various times, um, things get really cheap for whatever reason. So, you know, a few years ago, that was retail, Right. A few years ago, that was even just like the summer of 2018, you could buy Procter and Gamble and Pepsi, for example, you know, these world-class companies, you could buy them at well below the average multiple over the last two decades, simply because growth was temporarily, it looked like it had slowed down. And then now, of course, just two years later, growth has, organic growth has picked right back up again, as they always, always do when you have a quality set of underlying brands, um, as both of those companies do. So. I'll stop there, but that that's kind of the investing side. But obviously, in order to have money to invest, um, I had to start somewhere. So I started a company called Brightscope in 2008, and that company uh, provided ratings on retirement plans. So we published scores for every large retirement plan in the United States, um, starting with the big ones like the Microsofts and the Exxon Mobiles, and then we sold data to every large asset manager. So at scale, we had about 35 large customers that was everybody from fidelity goldman you know black blackrock uh state street t row you know you go down the list of any large asset manager in the us they probably used our platform uh, it took about eight and a half years a little, little longer to to build it up and then we sold it uh in the fall of 2016. so that was kind of the first real exit and you know learning from that experience immediately saw the opportunity uh, in the crypto vertical for something similar as it relates to providing data to the emerging crop of asset managers in the space. Um, you could kind of see that in 2017, 2018, there were hundreds of these new asset managers, starting with the, the ones you know, like Polychain and Pantera. Uh, but then there was a newer group coming in like Ikigai and Distributed Global. And, you know, you go down the list more recently, Paradigm. And these firms, you know, they have a lot of data needs, but the space is really immature. And so they, you know, needed a platform to help them, you know, digest, process, and utilize all the data in this kind of immature space. A lot to unpack there. And obviously, we'll get to digital assets, data, and what you guys are doing in, in a couple of minutes. But just curious about a couple of things you mentioned. I guess the first question is, what drew you to investing? You mentioned you started very early on, I think you said like 17. How did that come about? I think it came about because my mother is a is a saver. You know, I, I, 
I kind of got a little bit of a taste on both ends of the spectrum through my parents of like how to be a very, very aggressive saver almost to a fault. You know, my mom liked to pay the bills in advance and always liked to have a huge cash safety net. My dad, on the other hand, was a swing for the fences entrepreneur and was always taking risk and would make money and would never play defense, right? He would he would be investing the money he just made in something new, whether he understood it or not. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I tended to gravitate toward more towards my mother's side of uh, mother's way of thinking, I would say, on the investment side. Whereas uh, as an entrepreneur, I wanted to take risks more like my father did. So take the best of kind of both both worlds. And you know, my my father's mode of operating created a tremendous amount of volatility, right? Like we went from being rich to poor, uh, literally in like a few years, um, because he was, you know, taking too much risk and should have listened to my mother more. So that made an impression on me. So, you know, as a, as an investor, I've tended to be more conservative. Um, you know, people are like, why don't you own more, uh, Netflix or why don't you own more Amazon or why don't you own Tesla? And it's like, I don't think I need to own, I don't think I need to own all those names when I'm also, building software companies, right? I'd rather own companies that I think are trading below fair value or situations where things only need to be a little bit less uh, good or less bad than expected, right? Um, Versus situations like if you're buying Tesla today, you're betting on the future being really good for 10 years. And if the future is really good for 10 years, you might break even, right? Or make a little bit. Um, And so I think the attraction was really you know, I wanted to understand this world and I figured out pretty early, this is the most competitive, uh, most interesting intellectual challenge uh, that you could sort of find on the financial side of the world, right? Like mm-hmm. trying to trying to figure out where the world's going a decade or two or three out and then trying to position your capital to take advantage of it in the way that like systematically uh, gives you the highest odds of success. Um, and over time, I've, like I said, gravitated more towards a value oriented approach, but but obviously filtering in these specific ideas that I understand really well. Got it. And did you also engage in some short-term trading or is your investing style really focused on the long term? Well, there's what I've experimented with over 20 years. And then there's, if you look at my portfolio today, like you wouldn't see any sign of some of the things I needed to learn 15 years ago. But yeah, I mean, I, I bought uh, tech stocks I on short on a short-term basis I bought penny stocks on a short-term basis 20 years ago right I've at various times over the last two decades I've I've bought and sold options right um, but none of those things have ever worked as well as just buying great companies and holding them for as long as I could possibly hold them and so that's kind of where that's kind of where I sit now like I, I wait very patiently and until companies kind of get in my target valuation range, sometimes five or more years. Like I'll just watch and watch and watch, follow the companies. And then when they get in my target range, I buy a stake and let it ride. Um, And if anything, I might trim a little bit, but I don't really do any trading anymore because at least for me, I found that to be negative expected value. Um, Every time I start trading a little bit more, bad things happen. Yeah. It's so difficult timing the market. It is. It it plays with your emotions. It's like it's systematically designed to get you to do the wrong thing at the wrong time. And so the best way I found to make sure that doesn't happen is is to keep all my position sizes in the right range. Like if something gets way too big relative to something else, I know that it, from my past it'll cause a little bit more attention than I than I'd like to. I tend to do the best when I don't pay sort of daily attention to the various things that I own and kind of let them go for weeks 
or months at a time after I've made the decision to buy, right? Um, versus um, when you have a big position, uh, you start to pay more attention to it and it makes you more prone to making you know, bad decisions around the position. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess the obvious uh, second question that I wanted to ask you about what you mentioned is, sounds like you're really passionate about investing. Did you consider becoming you know, an investor full-time rather than an operator and an entrepreneur? Um, it, both things have been infused in my life over the last 20 years. I've been trying to start companies for 20 years, finally had success with Brightscope in 2008 uh, in terms of like raising outside capital and getting to an exit. Um, I've always been passionate about investing, but I think it's really crystallized over the last five years that, that I should spend the sort of second part of my career focused full-time on investing. So I kind of, when I raised money for digital assets data, I told our investor group kind of straight up, I said, you know, this is your last time you'll invest in me as a software entrepreneur, because going forward, if, if I ever raise uh, again, it'll be for, you know, some sort of long-term value-oriented investment fund. Right. And so I think, you know, there's a couple things going on there. One is that I've recognized that if you don't have a permanent source of capital, um, you're at a huge disadvantage over people that do when you're making long-term investments. Um, and the other thing is I've just noticed how when people raise outside capital, it doesn't matter how smart the investors seem at the outset. If things get really bad, like I remember 2008, 2009, even the smartest people get scared and they call you and they say, hey, you know, I need a little bit of liquidity. I need you to sell something that's liquid. And you end up doing the opposite thing that you should be doing at almost every key inflection point, right? Because you're getting those calls right when you should be buying, right? And you're getting calls from people, why don't we own more of something right when you should be trimming or selling? And so one of my one of my long-term ideas was, how do you get enough capital that you could start a long-term investment fund without any outside investors, such that you can really truly take a long-term perspective? Every professional investor says they take a long-term perspective, almost none of them do when there's a real crisis, right? When there's a real crisis, people are selling anything that moves. They're getting calls from their LPs or from their investors in a mutual fund structure, and they've got to they've got to sell stuff. Um, and I wanted to be in a position where I didn't have to do that. And the best way to build a, a large pool of capital outside of starting a hedge fund is to start a software company or start a technology company, at least in America, in, you know, 2020. Hmm. That's a really interesting perspective for sure. And one that I think is quite unique among software entrepreneurs. I don't think many software entrepreneurs go so deep into investing while running a company. So what made you start Digital Asset Data? Let's talk about your, uh, your company and what you do. So my brother, Ryan, um, is, his life's very intertwined with mine. When he graduated from... Harvard in 2005, I convinced him to move back to San Diego. Oh, rather... no, come on. How did you let him go to Harvard? <laughs> yeah, my other brother. Yeah, you still keep a relationship with him. Yeah, we still do. The Stanford-Harvard rivalry is not significant. Um, there's, <laughs> there's actually a lot of mutual respect there, but bo both of my brothers. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm kidding. Um, and, and both of them ended up working at Brightscope. And Ryan was my co-founder. He was, you know, there's no way we would have got Brightscope to the exit that we did without without him. Uh, we wouldn't have built the right product. We wouldn't have executed as well as we did. And so he actually left the acquirer first. So the acquirer bought us in 2016. He probably lasted 10 to 12 months, and I lasted about 15 months. So there was a sad day when he called me and said, look, I've got an opportunity to start 
a crypto hedge fund with two other partners. That fund's called Distributed Global. They have about 75 million, I think, is the last time I checked in in tokens uh, under management. That's everything from Bitcoin, Ethereum to to like early stage protocols where they were like first money in in some cases. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he he called me in the fall of 2017. He said, "Look, like uh, there's a lot going on in the space." Um, we were seeing like literally a hundred other funds being seeded right now. I mean, remember this was, this was during the kind of, uh, frenzy of late 17 where, you know, Bitcoin was shooting from, from 3000 to 5,000 to 10,000 to 20,000 in like six months. And, and so it was a great time to be out raising money. And he just, he called me one day in the fall with his partner, Johnny. And he said, we see all these new funds everybody's trying to manage their portfolio in an Excel spreadsheet. So they've got all their tokens in there. It's very inefficient. They have, you know, research staff going to coin market cap and we really don't know for sure what the methodology is, right? What the underlying quality or provenance of, of that data is, but we're using it anyway. What do you think about like working with us to kind of seed a Bloomberg, you know, FactSet, Morningstar, Tom, the old Thomson Reuters uh, business, which is now Refinitiv. Why, let's build something like that to serve this emerging asset class with a whole bunch of emerging managers. And I thought that just seemed really interesting. You know, I owned a few Bitcoin. I kind of had followed the space. I incorrectly, when I first read about it, like six, seven years ago, I, I, I thought it was a perfect analogy for the for the dot com bubble. And to some degree, the the price action in 2017 looked exactly like you know, what I was trading in my dorm room in 1999 and early 2000 uh, in terms of tech stocks. The difference is, well, th- there's some similarities because I think a decade later, it's going to be very clear that that so-called bubble of Bitcoin was actually just signaling the future uh, in the same way that the 2000 tech bubble was signaling, you know, what ended up happening over 20 years, which is the rise of these internet behemoths and sort of the internet uh, taking over almost every industry in some way, some form or another. I think crypto is going to infuse itself into society in a similar way. It may even happen faster. And so I saw that kind of pattern and looked interesting. I, I love data businesses. It's right up my alley. I kind of understand the dynamics for how to build one. Um, and so we, you know, we, we seeded the company in 2018. I raised the first 3 million kind of right out of the gate. Um, and then we did two more kind of seed extensions. So we ended up raising nine and a half uh, over about a year and a half uh, from from the beginning of 2018 to early 2019. Got it. So what made you make the shift from let's start a crypto fund or a hedge fund to starting what is now digital assets data? Well, that was so Ryan already was my brother was starting the crypto fund. I was not a partner or a part of that. Ah, okay. I thought you were considering joining that fund. No, I mean, uh, that was never really on offer, and I see. and and honestly, like part of the challenge is that I still at that time thought that what we were temporarily seeing was a bubble, so I wasn't ready to commit full time to being a full time crypto investor in late 2017 because I thought the prices were insane and I thought it was definitely a bubble, and I wanted to continue to hold my Pepsi and my Procter and Gamble. I didn't want to have to sell any to put money into a fund. Um, Got it. And that that at least temporarily ended up being the right decision. We'll see ten years from now whether that was the right decision. But um, so so I was never a part of the crypto fund. But my brother was sort of the link because he was a partner in that fund. But he also was my co-founder at Brightscope, and 
right away, we both kind of saw the opportunity to build this data business. And so his fund was one of my first investors. Like a lot of what we learned about what funds would need, I learned from working very closely with them, right? So a lot of these crypto funds are pretty secretive and they don't want to share a lot uh, with outside companies and outside vendors. Um, yeah. And so having that direct access to a working fund with, you know, more than 50 million under management and being able to sort of collaborate with their team was a huge advantage, right? That I think a lot of other, there were like 20 other firms we thought were doing what we were doing, but most of them have gone bankrupt or gone at this point, been subsumed mm-hmm. into some other entity because it's, it's actually really hard to build software for an emerging asset class because none of the customers, at least initially, have a tremendous amount of capital or a tremendous amount of staying power. And so building something that actually what the customer wants across a wide enough group of customers, uh, of customers that actually survive, it's, it's a pretty challenging proposition. Yeah, absolutely. So the market goes crazy, right? There's this ICO madness that's happening. What are some of the gaps that you guys identified in terms of the needs of hedge fund managers that weren't present at the time? So I think at the at the time there were there were people that thought that, you know, more a, a bigger percentage of these ICOs or these tokens, these kind of small cap tokens that were proliferating at the time would would end up being valuable. And then there was another group of managers that thought, um, maybe not Bitcoin maximalists, but but that there were only going to be a few assets that mattered in the long run. I think the jury's kind of still out on that. But at the time, a lot of what people wanted was some depth of data and research on kind of the 50th uh, biggest chain or the 50th uh, largest token through the through the top thousand or two thousand, right? Because that was where the gap was. A lot of people felt like they understood Bitcoin or they felt like they understood Ethereum, but they didn't understand some of the ERC twenty tokens further down the chain. They didn't feel like they had a good theoretical understanding of some of the other, um, you know, layer one opportunities um, out in the space at the time. And so that initially we thought. It was going to be look more like a research business with a whole lot of data. What we figured out as we went along is actually what people really want is to go much, much deeper on some of those core protocols like Bitcoin and Ethereum, where they want to do deeper analytics um, into what's happening on chain and right tie it to what's happening on the in the various market uh, venues, right? Mm-hmm. And, and they want to be able to look at like do the analytics of all the holders. Uh, for for Bitcoin historically, right? Um, and some of that's pretty heavy duty in terms of the processing that you need to do. So you can run a node on Bitcoin, but it's not going to immediately give you that type of analytic. You kind of need to take the data, you need to abstract away. You need to take the data away from the kind of blockchain environment because blockchains are not really created for data analytics. They're just created to confirm these transactions, right? Um, so you take the data away, you put it into a different environment um, and there you can combine it with other data sets and start to ask interesting questions. So what, what, what it is today really is a platform where you can ask any question, right? So if it's a question that can be answered using data, you know, our argument is that you'd want to use us to do that um, because we've built what we believe is the, the best environment to, to work with data live, right? So you can write code over the data. The data is already cleansed and normalized. It shows up in the platform. Um, you don't have to run your own infrastructure. So 
there are some funds that like want to run AWS or, or Microsoft Azure or whatever. And, and what we're seeing more and more is funds are just saying, they're throwing up their hands and they're saying, we don't, we don't think long-term there's a lot of value in like running a tremendous amount of our own infrastructure. As long as the data is good and we could do what we want uh, with it, we'll leverage, you know, a third party. Got it. And you're saying the data is pulled both from the actual blockchains and also from third-party data providers. So we go direct, right? So to the extent possible, like with, with exchange data, we, we cover like say the top 15 exchanges in the world uh, pretty well, like the top 10 spot exchanges and a bunch of the top derivative exchanges where we go direct and we pull the prices, the, the volume, the order books, right? So the prices and the trades and the order book snapshots at any given time and sometimes going much deeper into the order books where we have a direct feed, let's say, from that exchange where we are keeping, you know, on a streaming basis, we're keeping all that information um, as well as the historical. So whether you're a researcher and you just want, you want to ask a question about what was happening on Binance a year ago, or you're a high frequency, you know, more real-time oriented trader that needs low latency data from what happened in the last five minutes, you can do both um, through our platform, depending on how you use it, right? And so the most recent iteration of the platform moved it from more of a research platform that was more designed to like build a backtesting framework uh, or build some sort of model to, to figure out what's going on on a certain chain to now we have some real-time low-code dashboards or no-code dashboards that allows an analyst to real quickly say, look, I want to see you know, what's happened you know, on these three trading venues in the last 10 minutes. And then I want it updated in real-time on a streaming basis. And then I want to set alerts for certain uh, for certain things that might happen that we think are a signal for our trading strategy, right? I'm, I'm, this, some of this is hypothetical, right? Like people are using it for some combination of, of those types of types of uh, things that they want to track. Mm -hmm. And the clients are hedge fund managers, or does it extend beyond that? It's probably seventy percent or so um, hedge funds uh, and trading firms, but we also have you know, some protocol teams that we work with. We have some research firms that we work with. We have one of the uh, brokerages that we work with. Um, and so, you know, one of our arguments for why we believe we're sustainable relative to some of the other firms that are trying to build out data platforms in the space is we found good traction across like four or five customer types, which in a small space like this, the crypto hedge fund community in the U.S., uh, by itself is not really a big enough addressable market for very many companies to survive on, right? But if you can start signing exchanges, if you can start signing uh, brokerage firms, if you can sign protocol teams um, and serve all of them using the same platform, uh, you have a better chance of surviving, you know, long enough to take advantage of the real growth. I think that's coming over the next five years. And do you provide also data beyond public blockchains and exchanges? I'm just curious, let's say I want to get some data about a private company in the space. Is there a way to pull some data on that or are you just focused on public blockchains? So we, we focus as a company on making sure the most important data sets that you would need as an active investor or operator in the crypto specific verticals would need, right? So we, we, we focus most of our internal attention on gathering, cleaning, right? Uh, preparing for analytics, all these different 
data sets that are primarily market and blockchain oriented. We also provide some you know, technical data. We provide some sentiment data. We provide some other reference data sources that you need, right? Like you need to be able to translate the Bitcoin price into a bunch of other currencies but beyond USD, right? So that means you need to have information on the pricing of those other currencies, right? And some people want to do correlations with equities or oil or uh, the 10-year bond, right? So then you need to have data on those other assets. So to some extent, we go beyond crypto. But but to be honest, a lot of the, the driver for that is what the customer actually wants to do. So we have some customers who want to do that type of correlation work. We, we've built uh, a data importer uh, module on the platform that allows you to scrape whatever data set from, from third parties that you want to bring into the platform. So you can work it with it in the same format that you work with the blockchain and the market data. So it's pretty open, right? What we say is like, if there's some data set that you want to utilize in the platform, we don't have it. We can either help you bring that data set in on a regular basis, or we can just give you, you know, access to the data importer and, and you can essentially bring that data in, in any format you want. Mm-hmm. Do you see when you think about kind of what's next for you guys and the product roadmap, curious if you see a world where you go beyond crypto and you start to provide data on, you know, non-crypto companies or are you just focused on the crypto space? So we've, we've actually spent some time exploring that uh, because what we realized pretty early on is the platform we've built is not, uh, it's not exclusively valuable for crypto, right? So, so it's it's basically a investment oriented you know high throughput data platform with an embedded you know integrated development environment right that allows you to write mm-hmm. python and build sort of whatever model you want it's very similar to what some of the big traditional hedge funds like bridgewater and two sigma that are more quantitative in nature and that do a lot of data processing to get to an investment decision it's very it's very similar to what um, those firms have elected to build internally, and actually, you know, our two key architects, our CTO uh, and our COO, both came from Bridgewater, right? That was where they worked last. One of them was a computer science PhD who worked there for ten and a half years, so saw the evolution that was happening in terms of investment managers moving more towards a quant orientation and leveraging high volumes of data and having less human intervention, right? That's kind of those are key trends that are happening across asset management more broadly. And so what we built was something that is absolutely valuable with traditional markets. Um, but because crypto is so open and it's so new, right? In traditional markets, you have these big uh, traditional exchanges and they charge a lot of money for their data, right? So if you wanted to build what we're building, like your biggest cost, if you were working in traditional markets, would be all the data inputs, because all those data inputs have a high cost on them. In crypto, there's this small little window of opportunity where the market data is still free and the blockchain data will probably always be free because these are open networks. And so you're able to build, we're processing like 10 or 15 terabytes a day now of new data and all of it is for the most part today free, right? It's technically public data. It's not useful necessarily in its native format um, without you know, putting this kind of processing engine around it to allow you to build stuff easily with it. But the data, the underlying fuel for our platform is free. So I think, you know, we could go beyond crypto. We've had interest from a few other non-crypto hedge funds. But I think today we still see the biggest opportunity in the core vertical that we're playing in because there's really no alternative 
solutions. The biggest customers that have chosen us in the last quarter, they, they tend to go out and kind of survey the market. They look at everything that's out there and they end up coming back to us and say, look, it's really just a question of whether we're going to use you or we're going to build it ourselves, right? So it's not a you versus some other company. It's really a build versus buy discussion. And I think, you know, just like a traditional markets, it doesn't make sense for BlackRock or T. Rowe Price to build a Bloomberg company inside of their walls. It makes more sense to let Bloomberg be Bloomberg and just license the pieces of Bloomberg that you want and, fo- and focus your attentions internally at driving investment performance, right? And so I think that's the way this space plays out too over time. I don't see a lot of investors coming in the space now that tell you that they're going to build data platforms themselves. But two years ago, there most certainly were. A lot of firms said that they thought that they could build some of this. Turns out it's actually really hard to keep a bunch of nodes up and running, right? To, to keep your infrastructure running, uh, you know, with low latency and, and with accuracy over time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, makes sense. And uh, certainly there's, uh, there's a need for better data solutions in crypto for sure, given just how early uh, we are. Uh, so I'm sure there's a big opportunity there. But on the other hand, just like you said, I'm sure a lot of the infrastructure that you're building can be applied at some point beyond just the crypto space, which obviously in relative you know, terms is still tiny compared to traditional finance. Um, curious, Mike, how, how much are you, if at all, impacted by price swings in the price of Bitcoin and the market overall, the crypto market overall? For instance, when you know, Bitcoin price goes up, do you see more demand from hedge fund managers for working with you and for the products that you're offering? So that's a good question. I think I think that the change in the demand is really more on the investor side. When I say investor, I mean people who are looking to invest in companies. Mm-hmm. I've seen that basically like crypto winter and crypto spring oscillations in terms of like investor interest in the space on a really tight um, schedule. So like it seems to flip like every three to six months. Right, so so people talk about the crypto winter in 2018. I actually felt kind of things heat up in the spring of 18, and then and then get really really cold in the fall of 18, and then they heated up again in the spring of 2019 when Bitcoin was going up, and then they got kind of really cold again in the fall, and now you can kind of feel it thawing once again this spring. So I would say the the seasons of of feeling Bitcoin's price swings, I think at least for us, we felt it more. In terms of outside investor interest and in getting into our equity, um, the the demand from the investors who already have capital, like to some degree, they're they're not exposed to the Bitcoin price as much. If you already have raised a two hundred million dollar fund and you have a three year or five year lockup, your drivers of demand are not short term market oriented, right? So they're thinking three or five years out, how do we generate return? And then they're saying, well, we obviously need to leverage as much data as we can to make sure we're making the best decisions. Um, so I'm hopeful, you know, that I made the call in December, uh, that when Bitcoin was at, you know, around seven, that I thought it was possible this year for Bitcoin to go to 30,000. I know that's not like a particularly audacious prediction, but just looking at the past having cycles and, and what the, the sort of full calendar year returns have been historically. And it does feel like we're right at this inflection point where there should be a growing global interest in, in this entire category. 
Um, I think Bitcoin going back to all-time highs will be extremely bullish for a lot of the companies in the space in terms of being able to get more momentum on fundraising. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what's the, what are some of the important metrics that you look at or that you think the best hedge fund managers look at in order to determine their next moves? So, I mean, on Bitcoin, it's, it's really just like any sign of fundamental adoption, right? So, so metrics like, um, you know, how much, how much, what was the total volume on Square last quarter for Bitcoin, right? Like pretty interesting metric because it's growing. It represents kind of fundamental consumer demand. And when you, when you line that up with the mining, you know, having cycles, you're going to see this crossover point where it's very, very clearly going to, there's going to be more fundamental demand than there is supply, which will obviously impact price. You know, people are looking at the fundamental network health, right? Like the concentration of ownership and the, the hash power over time, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, things like, like the, the holder metrics, right? So looking at, you know, how long people have held each, you know, so UTXO going deeper into the UTXO data sets, um, on Bitcoin, on Ethereum, a lot of the interest has moved, you know, from sort of DApps a year ago to everybody cares about sort of DeFi now, right? So like when you talk, yeah. to, not just the Silicon Valley investors now, Silicon Valley investors were kind of leading indicators there, but now it's like the whole space. Everybody's watching the amount locked up in these various protocols, whether it's Maker or Compound, et cetera. Um, and people want to understand whether that's a real fundamental change in behavior with like a really long-term um, opportunity or whether it's kind of shorter term hype. I mean, I think we think it's a, a, a true long-term trend um, that's pretty compelling. Um, but the data so far shows a lot of concentration, right? And a lot more concentration, at least at this stage, than than you see in, in, in Bitcoin, where Bitcoin seems to have totally proliferated uh, worldwide. Yeah, absolutely. One of the challenges that I see a lot of investors still struggling with is, you know, when you invest in private companies using the more traditional VC model, then typically incentives are pretty much aligned between investors and the founding team. And, you know, that's a model that's been at this point proven for decades. When you think about token economics, I feel like we still haven't figured that out. Right. So, yes, you have, you know, the Bitcoin and Ethereum examples and maybe a few more. But in general, I, I still feel like when I, you know, talk with entrepreneurs uh, from an investor's perspective and they want to issue a token and raise that way, oftentimes I get the sense that it's unclear even if it does take off. Right. And they're building great technology and maybe they're building great solution. I still feel like sometimes it's unclear whether the token will actually capture the value that they will create. I agree. What's your take on that, also given your you know, investor's experience? Well, I don't, I mean, personally, I don't see a tremendous amount of value from a traditional <laughs> value investor framework, right? In yeah. Many of, the, in many of the tokens that have been rolled out. I mean, I think a lot of the reason why Bitcoin was successful was almost because, um, you know, they're, there were there wasn't a lot of attention right at the yeah. beginning so the thing was allowed to like naturally grow and proliferate without the same scrutiny without the same kind of for-profit mentality that that a lot of these new chains have come out with i think people are like fundamentally skeptical of anything that's come out now because it hasn't had the chance to season 
the way that Bitcoin did, where it's seasoned without a founder, without like a known person in the ecosystem who could, you know, say stupid things to the press or get arrested or be seen flying around the world on investor money. Right. And so like in a very pure way, it was just allowed to naturally, um, naturally grow. And, and some of these other uh, new protocols, you can see the team, you can see the economics, you can see how sometimes the economics don't work. Right. You can see how sometimes it, it doesn't seem to make economic sense. Uh, and so I think it's a hard I think it's a hard road. I think very few projects have the chance to to really achieve any sort of scale or sustainability. And I think, you know, staying long Bitcoin is still the most obvious um, uh, trade. And just because it's the most one of the most obvious doesn't mean it won't still generate a, a huge amount of return over time. I think people make the mistake of thinking things are over. You know, I heard that about Amazon. Yeah. Late 2000s, Amazon was over. And I, I admit to being guilty of this to some degree. But, you know, early t- 2010, Amazon was over. 2015, Amazon had already achieved scale, right? So, like, there were people who were saying, okay, not a lot left for Amazon at 300. Well, now, you know, it's up another 6 or 7x um, from there over the last five years. And, and there's no reason why it can't go to 4,000 or 10,000, right? And I think Bitcoin's going to end up being very similar where people are going to call the top, you know, for, for a decade or more, <laughs> it'll just keep being wrong. Right. Yeah. It's, uh, again, it's very tough to time the market. And I think for a lot of us in the space, we feel quite bullish about Bitcoin, but what many of us kind of forget is, well, you know, maybe a lot of people heard about Bitcoin, but they're not sold yet. Right. They probably never bought Bitcoin before. They haven't really taken the time to explore it in great depth. And so even though it feels like it's pretty late in the game, I think it's fairly easy to make the case that it's actually quite early. Yeah, I agree 100% with that. It's hard for us to grasp that something is big but can just get much bigger. And I think it's fairly easy to make that case for crypto for sure, just given how early it is in terms of adoption. And and how global, right? The thing that I think most people fail to right. really understand, particularly if they haven't been in the space at all. But like, is like if you think about Amazon, like there really weren't substantial buyers of Amazon from Asia, right? There are people in Asia that obviously own Amazon, but it's like a lot of work. It's just just like it's a lot of work for an American to own, you know, Sapporo stock in Japanese yen or to own Heineken stock in euros, right? Like you have to set up a special account. The reality is no one does it. Um, they tend to own the stocks in their own geographic region same thing with currencies like the u.s dollar is the most widely recognized currency globally but if you're traveling in central uh africa like you know if you try to use it with like a guy on the street maybe a handful of people will take it but a lot of people won't it's this is the first asset in human history that actually might be able to be exchanged uh like let's say in the next decade everywhere uh, where everybody has direct access to it as long as they have an internet connection and I think eventually equities go that way too. I think eventually they wrap all of these equities as ADRs and they trade on a 24-7 cycle the same way crypto trades today. Um, but Bitcoin was the first asset that truly went global. And so it's competing for mindshare with every other store of value, every other currency in a way that I don't think any other asset in human history has. And therefore, its potential market size is like some order of magnitude above anything else. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, again, when you consider the size of the opportunity, right? Yes, Bitcoin is worth now, you know, around 200 billion. But I mean, gold is almost 8 trillion. 
if you're just buying to the store of value, digi- you know, digital gold narrative, there's still a long way to go just on that. And of course, to, you know, to caveat that, that's not an investment advice. Curious, Mike, when you started the company, how did you get the word out? How did you get your first customers? So we were a little bit different than a lot of other players in the space. Like we, we through Ryan's distributed global fund, we had a direct kind of access point to almost every other major fund or every investor. Oh, uh, yeah. That's uh, a huge so, advantage. Yeah. Like at, at Brightscope, you know, 10 years ago, we didn't know anyone. It took us like three years of getting PR, right? Having our data show up in the press and going to industry conferences before people kind of knew who we were and we could get those meetings easier. We didn't really need to do that in this space. Like what we found was, A, we could get to everybody with one email or one phone call. And B, there was a tremendous appetite from our target customer to look at solutions like what we were building. So so it's so targeted and so niche that like everybody wanted to see it. And so what we realized pretty quickly is we didn't need to do all of the things that you would do in other verticals or at other times or places in order to... Uh, get a customer that all we needed to do was deliver the right customer for this, uh, you know, small vertical that we were trying to serve initially and that the rest would take care of itself. And that's what we found. We like, Signing customers isn't hard uh, in this space. If you're an experienced entrepreneur that has relationships, uh, what's challenging is building a product that people can actually use at scale. And, you know, that, that, that takes a lot more effort than actually the marketing or the sales approach. Right. And what I like about your business model is obviously with every new client you get, you get revenues, right? It's not yeah. like you need to build a huge uh, user base only to then start figuring out monetization. No, it's yeah, it's just traditional SaaS. It's one-to-one. We eventually might have a self-serve model, but today we're interested in working with firms where we actually can kind of get more embedded into their process where we can work with them and do some data science work to, to help them leverage the platform for specific outcomes. Um, so we want like a high touch point, white glove type of experience initially versus, you know, a lot of SaaS companies that are kind of prosumer or they sit in between kind of enterprise and consumer where they, they want the lowest friction to just come on board with a credit card. That's just not how we're, we didn't think that was even possible to do at scale at this space early on. We needed to know all of our customers on a first name basis initially to make sure we were building the right thing. And I think, you know, there's enough signs of deep traction now that that we believe that was the right strategy. But, you know, we won't really know, to, to be candid, we won't really know for sure whether we had the right strategy for another two, three, five years. Whoever ends up getting to scale in the space will look back and say, oh, wow, that was the right strategy, obviously. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. The beauty of hindsight. And how do you how do you approach product development? Curious if, for instance, you customize some of your product offering for specific clients, or is it like a one-stop uh, solution and all the clients get the same products? So, so the core platform is the same, right? It's the it's the same underlying cleaned up data, right? It's the same IDE, it's the same notebook environment, it's the same, you know. GUI, it's the same set of APIs. What makes it different is like what customers actually want to build on top of that and what they want us to build for them in some cases. And so, 
you've got the same underlying clean data, but one firm is really focused on DeFi and another firm is really focused on Bitcoin. And one firm is really focused on researching past signals and the other one wants to run like a real-time model using streaming data. And so what's what's nice about it is if you build a platform, right, you can serve all those use cases without a tremendous amount of customization because eventually you figure out like what a lot of the major use cases are and you design those modules right into the platform. So someone signs up and literally that afternoon they're running a backtesting framework using a ton of data and they didn't have to do any of the underlying work of creating the platforms, setting up the servers, running the nodes, pulling down the data, cleaning the data, organizing the data, and then writing whatever algorithm, right, or analytic on top of it. So there's all these steps. And what we found is a lot of people were getting stuck in just the cleaning steps, right? Plugging into exchanges, running nodes, trying to get the data into a format. They'd spend months Mm -hmm. on that. And so when you finally see some of these analyses that get posted on Medium and Twitter, like several months of time was spent on things that had nothing to do with what made those analyses cool. What made it cool was the thinking, the intellectual work around like thinking about how to put the data together and what question to answer and and to really uh, you know present the data to the reader in a way um, that would make it compelling. Um, but actually, people spend eighty or ninety percent of their time on on the munging of the data and the plumbing and the and whatnot. And so, so, yeah. so our vision is to really be the plumbing, to be the place that you can just focus on manifesting your ideas, asking questions, getting answers versus doing a lot of pipelines and doing a lot of cleaning and, and whatnot. Makes sense. When you think about the market more broadly, kind of shifting gears a bit, any specific development or maybe project that you're especially excited about in the crypto space? For instance, you mentioned DeFi before, talked about Bitcoin. Just curious, what's your take on the market? So, I mean, I think there are a few verticals outside of like a store of value or outside of kind of what Ethereum and, and these smart contract protocols are doing. Like there are a few privacy protocols like Dash and um, Zcash and Horizon, which I'm particularly fond of, um, that that look interesting and seem to have achieved some, you know, organic adoption. There's definitely going to be some utility tokens that achieve some form of adoption and there definitely seems like there's going to be some security tokens uh, that seems inevitable to me it just it may take a while but that's a really fundamental use case right sort of the digitization of of all traditional assets including you know illiquid real estate assets that might benefit from additional liquidity um, so i'd say all of those are you know privacy uh, utility and and security tokens are all interesting verticals i i don't think there's enough data yet to say for sure like what's happening in any of those uh, verticals in a way that like would give you a lot of certainty of where the world's going to be five years from now but I'm pretty confident that something cool something real is happening in each one of them and I'll certainly be keeping an eye you know on all of them uh, we tend to go wherever our customers go so it's not so important that I have like a distinct you know I'm not a market commentator I don't go on and say, like, hey, here's what I think is happening with DeFi and this is, you know, how you should think about it. I'm more, here's all the data. Um, what questions do you want to answer relative to what's happening with DeFi? Yeah. And so that that's a pretty distinct uh, difference in positioning for us versus like some of the other data firms that I would view as 
uh, analytic shops that like have really focused on answering the question for the client versus giving them a platform to answer the question. Makes sense. I think you also have the advantage of just your experience investing in traditional financial world. And I'm sure that you're applying some of the learnings you had there when you think also about developments in the crypto space. Yeah, I mean, as long as some of these analogies actually play out, um, I, think somebody, <laughs> right. I think somebody who's read a lot of case studies and lived through other market cycles and worked with other asset managers. I mean, we, we worked with BlackRock and Fidelity and T. Rowe and Goldman for, for seven, eight years in some cases. And that insight into how asset managers think about data and how they use software is a huge advantage over somebody who's never sold uh, software to an asset manager. Right. It doesn't mean we're going to get everything right in crypto because crypto is a new animal, but some of the things rhyme. And so like people talk about first principles thinking, I think that's, you know, great um, in, in some ways, but sometimes the faster way to get there is just to understand what rhymes with what you're doing and then make a quick decision based on what's likely to work and then just be willing to change your mind quickly if, if it ends up being wrong. Right. And, you know, you engage obviously on a daily basis with fund managers What's your view on, obviously, for a long time, there's been this narrative about institutions are coming, right? And the institutional capital is going to increase significantly in the short term and so forth. Some people say, actually, institutions already arrived. And to a large degree, they do have some exposure. Maybe it's small, but they already do have some exposure. From your kind of engagements with fund managers, what's your take on that? Where are we on that spectrum? Uh, I think it's still early, but but I think somebody who says the institutions are not there, they're just not paying attention. Um, you know, you see a lot of institutional trading, even in like the grayscale Bitcoin trust, the GBTC is the ticker. Yeah, um, you see, which has gone significantly this year. Yeah, yeah, it's it's you know I own some in my IRA because it's just a really efficient way to get Bitcoin exposure in a retirement account without having to open like a Bitcoin specific account and do jump through all those hoops. Um, so you see it there. You definitely see it in the utility of like a lot of these derivative exchanges. You see it in quiet like exchanges like LMAX that that have grown without anybody even seemingly noticing it. Um, and then you see, you hear a lot just through insider circles of like global macro managers that have bought hundreds of millions of dollars of Bitcoin direct, right? Like these are private people. They're not going to, they're not going to spend a lot of time telling the world about it. They're definitely not going to get quoted in Bloomberg talking about it. But, but those of us who know those people and who have them as investors know that they've built pretty large stakes uh, in some of these tokens. So I think to some degree it's already happening and I think it'll be one of those things where if you look away for even just a year or two, you'll look back and you'll be shocked by how much development there's been and how many new players are now officially in the space. Because I think there's a lot of people that are testing strategies, that are doing things in small ways, um, who are learning about the space and they'll jump in, but they're not going to tell the world they've jumped in. So you only hear about it later. Right. A lot of the things happening aren't necessarily public yet. But there's a lot of institutional interest for sure. So last question, Mike, before we finish. You've mentioned earlier that you've raised, I think, what, like over $9 million by now? Nine and a half. Yep. Nine and a half. A lot of our listeners are entrepreneurs. And I'm curious if you have any best practices around fundraising or just your own learnings, both from your previous company and the current one, that you can share 
you know, some tips maybe for aspiring entrepreneurs who are looking to raise money? Sure. Yeah. I mean, look, uh, fundraising is, is really hard. Uh, it always is. Um, I mean, unless you're just like one of these rocket ship companies, uh, and in my experience, that's like less than 1% of, you know, outs- companies funded with outside investment. Um, I saw that the other day, actually, I, was, I went to visit Figure in San Francisco and like they've gone from zero to 250 in less than two years in terms of employees and they'll probably double again yeah within 12 months and and you could just feel it in the office like the the buzz and the people flying around the room and there's just so much going on there like it's it's just incredible so like if you're not if you're not figure i i would say the best the best investors in the world without exception in venture are mostly focused on market size right so it's like market size is even more important than team they'll they'll pass on a good team if they're in a small market and they might do a deal with a me- mediocre team as long as the market's huge and they have a credible path to addressing it. So I think, you know, starting from the inside out and thinking through like how, how your market really evolves over time and making sure you have a good story there. And then just last point on this um, is, you know, raising when you're a CEO is, is probably the most important thing that you can do as an early stage. I mean, there's product and team and, and strategy and whatnot, but to be honest, like most companies fail just because they run out of money. So I often tell some of the CEOs where like I'm on the board or I'm advising them that fundraising is a full-time job. Uh, if you need to spend 80% of your day on it uh, for a month or two or longer, then that's what you need to do because no one else is going to do it. Someone else can do almost anything else in a startup, uh, but no one else can raise the money. Uh, if, if you're actually supposed to be a CEO and so you have to do your job, it's pretty simple. Like I think a lot of people think they can just like take five meetings and ask for term sheets. In my experience, that's just not the way it works. It's a little bit, it takes a little bit longer and it takes a little bit more work and you got to run it like a sales funnel, just like any good salesperson would. Right. And what's the right time to fundraise from your perspective? Is it like really early on or should you wait to have a prototype and then approach investors? Like, how are you thinking about that? Well, it depends, right? Because in our case, we were able to raise a lot of money before we had the product because we had a, from raising, you know, and having built Brightscope before, uh, people believed us when we said we could build what we were going to build, right? And we have built it. And so, like, we validated at least that part of uh, their belief. The problem with a lot of early stage entrepreneurs is like, you give them two or $3 million and you really don't even know what that's going to get you. You're not sure whether or not that's going to, get to you know a finished product um and so anyway like i think it's so dependent on the person it's it's really hard to know and and so for first-time entrepreneurs you you basically have to do everything right um because the 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 you know everything's sort of stacked against you if you've done it before you can skip some of the steps sometimes you can get more capital probably sooner than you otherwise would be able to and that's fine you know you've got to pay your dues in this business yeah Absolutely. Mike, thanks so much for taking the time to come on the show. Really enjoyed the discussion and appreciate you taking the time to share your insights. Thank you, Tom. I really appreciate the invite to come on. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode of The Blockchain VC and want to help bring more awareness to the space, I'd really appreciate it if you can rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. This only takes a few seconds and helps get the word out.